during worship, I was remembering a dream I had once uh, during a time I was on staff at a church. And in the dream, I stand up in the conference room and it looked just like the conference room we met in as a staff. And I said, I have to confess when I preach, sometimes I'm more aware of the people who sit in the front right. And that's where the staff always sat. And there was people that I really respected on that pastoral staff. And I said, sometimes I'm more aware of the front right than I am of the fact that every time I preach, the Lord is in the room and there's people who need to hear the gospel. And I was confessing to the staff that that had been wrong. I think it was Michael Koulianos who said, the only question that really matters is, did the Lord show up? And when he came, did he enjoy what was happening? Father, tonight we ask for your presence to meet us here. And that even as we've been singing, we just want to move your heart that the things that are spoken, even the quiet conversations that are going on in our head and the ways that we're responding even silently in our chairs, that it would move your heart, that it would please you. We ask for you to show up in a pronounced way tonight and allow every person in the room to encounter Christ at a deeper heart level. I pray for lives to be transformed by the power of the gospel. Tonight I put no confidence in my homiletics. It's just a fancy word that means sermon crafting. And all my confidence in the message of Jesus and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which I ask for you to send down now, that you would pick up these words and carry them home into the hearts of people. Earlier this week, I was in Florida and I was riding in a car with a guy from Kansas City. He's part of the International House of Prayer. And I noticed that on the radio, he had Misty Edwards' Light of Your Face playing. And I said, oh, well, it's not crazy because he's from IHOP. Misty Edwards was from IHOP. But that's not a new song. It's not like he was playing the latest Maverick City song. I said, man, this song has actually been really significant to us on campus this year. And if you were here when Contend came through intercessory prayer ministry from Colorado, there's a moment where we all stretched our hands towards where we do evangelism and towards the campus. And we were singing out, let the light of your face shine down on my heart and let me feel it. And we were praying that over the campus. We were praying for that over our own hearts. And it's come up again in prayer came up even just a week or two ago as we were praying before the gathering started that God would cause the light of his face to shine on this campus, that he would cause the light of his face to shine down on our hearts. And that's my prayer for tonight. Father, that you who spoke, let the light shine in the darkness, would cause the light of the gospel to shine in hearts tonight. And that you would reveal your glory that rests in the face of Jesus Christ. We're asking for a glory encounter with the man Jesus Christ tonight. That Jesus would be magnified. That Jesus would be made much of in this place. That as Jesus is lifted up, hearts would be drawn to him. So we pray these things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and grab your seat. So I want to read, you don't have to turn there because I'm going to go kind of rapid fire through a number of verses that are just awesome Bible verses. 
Um, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. John 1 verses 14 and 18. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father. He has made him known. Second Corinthians four, six is my favorite verse in the Bible for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when that happened to you for the first time? When the same stories that you had heard a bunch of times, all of a sudden, whoa, the shining forth of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ penetrated your heart and you knew that you would never be the same. You knew you didn't have it all figured out. You knew you didn't have all, everything like, answered about what it was going to look like to follow Jesus. But you just knew that after you met Jesus, something had changed in your heart and you couldn't go back to the day before you saw it. Do you remember that moment? If you haven't had that moment yet, I pray tonight would be that night. That's our prayer. You just agreed when you said amen when I prayed it before this service started. That the light of his face to encounter the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We don't stare at paintings from the Renaissance. Nothing against the Renaissance. Praise God for good art and for the chosen I know some of us, when we picture the face of Jesus, we see the chosen. It's okay. No, we look into the story of Jesus. We look into the story of Jesus. It's as we stare into the gospels that the contours of his face become clear and we see God's glory on full display in the man Jesus Christ. Help me out. The first four books of the New Testament are collectively called what? The gospels. The gospels. And they tell one story, and that story is what? They tell the story of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is the gospel. Augustine, St. Augustine confessed once when he had referred to them as the gospels, he corrected himself and said, I should just call it the gospel. Four different tellings of one story, and it's the story of Jesus. Jesus is the gospel, and the word gospel means good news. Jesus is the good news. It is an announcement. It's a proclamation of good news. I've said before, I love preaching. I love what we do out here when we dialogue. We go back and forth. We kind of do apologetics and we try to give a reason for the hope we profess. But the reason I love preaching is because the very act is fitting of the content of the message. It's a royal proclamation. Therefore, it's not a philosophy. It's not an idea. It's not a possibility. It's a declaration of who Jesus Christ is. And the proper way to deliver that message is like a herald who stands outside the gates and announces that Jesus is king. And calls everybody inside the city to come under his surrender terms. Not to dance in front of the wall, not to make excuses, not to come up with 15 different possibilities. 
but to claim that Jesus is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And we must decide what we will do with this man. The very act of preaching is befitting of the message. To lay before you here is truth. I I was thinking about also before I got up to deliver this message. I was asked one time, I was on a trip to University of Alabama at Birmingham, one of our Ignite campuses there. And I had prepared to speak that night to the students. And then the next night they were doing this large 24 hour. It was like 27 hours. If you're with Paul Hughes, I don't know if you're listening to this, Paul, you always get looped into some interesting stuff at a women's rehabilitation center. And it was a good amount of people. And he said like that night or the morning before he goes, yeah, and I, I think I'm going to have you preach tonight. And I definitely had no message prepared. And I could have scrambled. I'm like, oh, I got to get an outline together. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go back to the stories about Jesus that first began to like really open my heart to the gospel. And I'm just going to tell Bible stories. And I don't feel the need to put together little zinger one-liners and have an ABC point. I'm just going to tell Bible stories. There's power in the message of Jesus to transform lives. The glory of God is in that message. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.28, Him, meaning Jesus, we proclaim. Twice in the gospel, the Father's voice says from heaven, This is my Son. The Father's message to us is Jesus. What message would the Father choose to speak from heaven? This is my son. I love him. This is my son. Listen to him. Many people are dying for a little scrap of good news in their life. And meanwhile, the Father has set a table and the Holy Spirit is inviting anybody who would hear to come sit and feast on the good news that is found in Jesus Christ. Think about one day we were outside at the whiteboard. We just were going through a bunch of different questions because we were fishing and catching nothing. And we just said, tell us something good. Give us a piece of good news. And person after person walked by with their head hanging low and just said, I got nothing. I got no, no good news. Nothing comes to mind. We have good news. Yeah. Amen. Jesus yeah. is the good news. Yeah. I want to start tonight by assuming that you know nothing about the Bible and nothing about Jesus And if that's the case, you may be wondering why Jesus is good news. And my goal tonight is to thoroughly convince you that Jesus is the best news. So let's back up to the beginning, all the way to the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything that can be seen and everything that can't be seen. On the earth, he prepared a garden as a suitable habitat for mankind. He made man and woman and placed them in the garden. They walked with God in open fellowship and felt no shame at their nakedness. Not only were they made in God's image, but they were given dominion. They had an assignment. They weren't just created to exist. Mm. From the beginning, before the fall, man and woman had a purpose. They were commissioned to rule over God's creation as his image bearers and as his representatives. They were to extend the boundaries of Eden. The whole earth was not Eden. Eden was a garden planted, and their role was to take the boundaries of Eden and spread it over the entire face of the earth. And they were not to do it alone. They were to do it from a place of intimate partnership and relationship with God himself. Okay. However, we know just three chapters into the story, humans disobeyed the one command that God had given them. The one restriction that God had placed on their freedoms. They overstep that one restriction. Satan comes to them and he says, did did God say you can't eat from any of the trees? They said, no. He said, we can eat of all the trees. There's just one. That we can't take of. They usurped God's authority by trying to become little G gods 
for themselves. And the, the effects of that decision have been catastrophic. So God, as an act of both judgment and mercy, it's an act of mercy because if they eat of the tree of life in their fallen state, that is punished. That's not good to stay in an eternal state with the poison of sin inside of you. So as an act of mercy and judgment, God removes them from the garden and they're cast into the wilderness. They go east of Eden. They're removed from the presence of God. They left the place where life reigns for the place where death reigns. They forfeited their dominion. They handed over their birthright and they gave up their inheritance. It's like Esau. He gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. He regarded it as of nothing, right? For the temporary pleasures of sin, they gave up their birthright. They forfeited their inheritance. So some of you who are familiar with the story may have wondered why God didn't just immediately, raise your hand if you've ever thought this before. Why doesn't God just immediately wipe out evil and come destroy Satan? Come on, be honest, right? Yeah, we've all thought this. I'm not saying that I like have all this figured out, but I think that part of the answer to that question is that even though humans failed majorly and that we all continue to fail perpetually god has not forfeited his plan everybody say his plan because his plan. god's plan has always been to have a family a human family of sons and daughters to co-rule over his good creation and he was married to that plan i'm gonna say that again god's plan from the beginning was always to have a human family of sons and daughters to co-rule over his good creation Not to destroy his good creation and not to get rid of humans and do it through some other means. Therefore, God promised a human deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent, right? So God does not alter his plan. God's eternal purpose would now require a rescue plan. And that rescue plan was not plan B. But we know because Jesus is called the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. That it was the eternal covenant of redemption that God had always in his foreknowledge set apart Jesus Christ to be the lamb who would be slain for the sins of the world, to draw us back into right relationship with God, to create that human family of sons and daughters who would co-rule over his good creation. But they would do it as their free will love offering to God, not just out of duty and not just out of obligation and not as automaton robots, but those who exercise their free will in loving trust and obedience. A gospel that gets you saved but doesn't bring you into loving trust and obedience is probably no gospel at all. Because Jesus didn't just save us from hell. He saved us into a relationship with him. And the only thing that makes heaven heaven is God's presence. And so if you don't love God, then heaven is not going to be heaven to you. So fast forward to Genesis 11 at a place called Babel, which means uh, confusion. People come together to build a tower, which most biblical scholars agree with something in the ancient world called a ziggurat. A ziggurat was a high place where people tried to summon the divine. In a sense, the people were trying to climb into heaven and make a name for themselves. This is animated, I believe, demonically, and it's an attempt again to usurp God's rule and God's reign. Human evil was, no pun intended, reaching new heights, and God was going to have none of it. So God comes down, and he confuses the language, Babel, Babylon, Right? We need to follow the thread. We've talked about this before, the whole story of the Bible. The New Jerusalem and Babylon, like all the way in the origins, there's a place of confusion. God not only confuses the language, he disperses the nations. And get this, he disinherits the nations. What that means is he gives them over to their idolatry. And he says, you don't want me to be your God? 
I'm going to disinherit you as the nations. It doesn't mean that God is not sovereign over creation, that he's any less God. But this is where we get the language in the New Testament that Paul likes to use of powers and principalities. That though they're worshiping graven, carved images, he's going to give them over to their depravity and they're going to be ruled by the powers and the principalities. But the very next chapter, God is going to select a man out of the Ur of Chaldeans, which is right outside of present day Babylon, called, named Abram. And out of a pagan culture, he's going to select his man to begin over again and give him the Edenic rule. His, his plan is to create a kingdom of priests who will be a light to the nations. And in Genesis chapter 12... He's going to give Abram a promise that all the nation. So first of all, Abram's is childless, that he's going to make a great nation out of him and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Abram believes this ridiculous promise from God. And therefore, it's credited to him as righteousness long before the law is ever given. Before Abram is circumcised it means that salvation and righteousness is by faith and not by works of the law. Because the promise preceded the giving of the law. So how we come into right standing with God is that we believe God. We trust God. The one who's able to bring life from the dead. Abram, as far as his years were concerned, was as good as dead. And his wife's womb was closed. She was past. She's post-menopause, I'm only assuming. It is impossible physically for her to give birth to a child. Isaac's name literally means laughter. Because people will laugh when they hear about what God has done. Audacious faith to believe God despite the impossible. But I want you to hone in on this promise that all the nations, the nations that in the very chapter before God has disinherited and dispersed. The very next chapter, he plucks out of this pagan culture, this idolatrous culture, this polytheistic culture, a man that he's going to in his mercy reveal himself to and start over Again, Isaac is born to Abram, who eventually has Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name is later going to be changed to Israel. Uh, Jacob's sons obviously become the 12 tribes of Israel, God's covenant people, a kingdom of priests. Again, who are to be a light to the nations and carry forth the original Eden mandate. Jacob's youngest son, Joseph, hated by his brothers, is sold into slavery. And in the place of slavery, God's providence is at work. Later on, when his brother showed up, he says, what you intended for harm, God intended for good, even for the saving of many lives. Jacob is going to, or sorry, Joseph is going to be mistreated in Egypt, but eventually he's going to be raised up to the seat of power in Egypt. He's going to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. He's going to interpret dreams and store up in the years of bounty, in the years of abundance, extra grain for the seven years of famine that are coming on the whole known earth at the time, which is also going to result in the saving, literally, of the people of Israel. Because Jacob and his sons are eventually going to move to Egypt. And after the Pharaoh who knew who Joseph was dies off, they endure 400 years of harsh slavery. And when the people begin to feel the oppression of their slavery, their bondage in Egypt, they begin to cry out to God. And God hears their groaning and he remembers his covenant with Abraham. And he raises up a deliverer in none other than Pharaoh's house. God's glory, which I believe was the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus Christ, shows up in the burning bush when he calls Moses by name and says, go back to Egypt. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Through many signs and wonders and acts of judgment on the gods of Egypt, God shows that there is one true God. 
And he brings the people out miraculously. He's able to preserve them in Goshen, even as he's pouring out judgment on the land. And then he takes them through the waters of the Red Sea. And on the other side, he comes into this covenant relationship. with them. It's like a marriage ceremony that lasts a year at the foot of Mount Sinai. The very same mountain where Moses received his marching orders at the burning bush. Where he said, I'll give you a sign. You're going to worship me at this very mountain. The whole people are going to come out and they will worship me at this mountain. So the people, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, are taking the very earrings and the gold and silver that God had given them from their captors. He told them, ask the Egyptians for their wealth as you're on your way out. And they leave with the superabundance of wealth. And they take the very gold and silver, the necklaces, the earrings, the bracelets, all this stuff. And they use the blessings God had given them to cast idols. Even while Moses is on the mountain receiving the covenant, down below, the people are prostituting themselves to a golden calf and saying, Israel, here is Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. So God says, Moses, go down. See what's become of your people. Moses is on his way down the mountain with the two stone tablets, which have the terms of the covenant on them, which God had inscribed with his own fingers. And while they're still a way off, Joshua says, it sounds like there's war in the camp. And Moses says, that's not the sound of war. It's the sound of revelry. The people are dancing around the idols that Aaron had cast for them. And when Moses sees it, he takes the sign of the covenant and he throws it to the ground. And the tablets are broken in pieces. It's a picture that the covenant has been broken. Moses can't even get off the mountain before the covenant's broken. And there he's looking at the broken stone pieces. And it's a picture of the covenant that's been shattered to pieces. It's like they committed adultery on their wedding night. And so the looming question in the biblical narrative at this point is what will happen to God's faithfulness when the people of God are unfaithful? How will God maintain his plan, which he had from Eden and then was disrupted three chapters in, and his eternal purpose to have a human family of sons and daughters who will co-rule over his creation? And God's promise that through the nation of Israel, he would bless all the nations of the earth. When even during the covenant ceremony, they're already prostituting themselves at the foot of the mountain. This is the looming question of the biblical narrative. And the plot only thickens the further we go on because God is going to bind himself with even more promises. And the people are going to show themselves even more unfaithful. And it's so easy to point the finger at the Israelites and to read the biblical story as if we're always the hero. But the Bible says there's no one found righteous. No, not one. Everyone stands guilty before God's throne. We don't stand before a human tribunal. It's not your peers who say whether you are a good or nice person. It's the holy, holy, holy of Isaiah 6. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one who seeks after God. And so this, their story is our story. Their unfaithfulness is our unfaithfulness. And so the question is, what will God do with his plan? What will God do with his eternal purpose? How will God fulfill his promise? How will God continue to be faithful when the other party 
time and time and time again fails him and is anything but faithful. If we don't understand the plot, we can't understand how Jesus' is good news is the solution to that story. Because God is going to make a promise to David that he would always have an heir to sit on the throne. And anybody ever read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles? Basically reads like this. So-and-so was a bad king. And then so-and-so's son did more evil than his father before him. And then so-and-so did way more evil than the generations before him. I remember listening to a podcast one time about a guy, uh, I believe he was raised in India, who came to faith, left the faith, and then came back to the faith, I think through reading First or Second Chronicles, because he said, I've read other history books and what's out there, and no other history in antiquity reads like this, where it honestly tells of all the failings of all of its people and leadership. There was no other book that he had found like the Bible. So then it caused him to search through the rest of the Bible to figure it out. And the the conclusion is there's only one hero and it's Jesus. He's the center of the story. So the answer to that question, what will God's faithfulness look like in the light of our failings is found in Jesus. The plot is only resolved in Jesus. Second Corinthians one 20 says for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So the gospel narrative is that God sent his one and only son. I use the word sent because it's appropriate. The one who had been with the father throughout all of eternity, the pre-existent, uncreated Jesus, the second member of the Godhead of the Holy Trinity, who is himself fully God. God sent his son, born of the virgin, fully God, fully man. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He demonstrated the kingdom of God wherever he went by casting out devils, by healing the sick, cleansing the leper, opening blind eyes, raising the dead, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, proclaiming the year of Jubilee. The time for forgiving debts has arrived, proclaiming the good news to the poor. He called men and women to follow him. Wherever he goes, the light of the world shows up on the scene and darkness scatters like cockroaches. But all of his life, ministry and mission was barreling towards a type of seemingly anticlimactic event. I love what Scott McKnight says about the gospel according to Mark, that around 50% of the gospel is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. And prior to that chapter, He constantly is using words like immediately, as soon as, suddenly. It's like he's trying to speed up the plot to get to the Passion Week. He wants to get to Christ and Christ crucified. The glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Naked, on a tree, between two criminals. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the holy for the unclean. And that's the shining forth of your glory. You want to see what the glory of God looks like? You look at Calvary. And you see the one who stepped out of holy, 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 took off his majesty, stripped his garment of light, clothed in rainbow. Flashes of lightning and rolling thunder. Attended by seraphim. They cover their eyes. They cover their feet. Holy, holy, holy. Yeah. 
and the light of his face shines from Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul, who had been in the third heaven, in the highest heaven, said, I've resolved while I was amongst you to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. Barreling into the story. He wants to get to the Passion Week. He wants to take every reader to the foot of the cross. And say look at your cruciform God. This is God's attributes on full display. This is the mercy of God. This is the judgment of God. This is the justice of God. This is the love of God. Shining forth in the face of Jesus Christ. Has the light of the gospel been revealed to your heart yet. Which when you see that light, all of a sudden it's like, I can't look at anything else. I can't, I can't look, what, after I've seen that, I can't look away. It's the treasure in the field. But that's not even the end of the story. He's buried in a rich man's grave, sealed with a stone, Roman guards stationed outside. And as if from Genesis 3 to this moment, the earth had been in a cold, long, dark winter season. All of a sudden, I love that song. I know the name of the song, the resurrection, where it's like we always get to that part. Then his buried body began to breathe and everybody starts getting real hype. <laughs> you, y'all know the song I'm talking about, right? I always thought out, yeah, when it gets to that point. <laughs> It's like a knee-jerk reaction. You can't help it. You're just like, yeah. It was the dawning of spring. It's like the first bloom of spring came up out of the winter soil of humanity. The firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ is back from the grave. And God's new creation has been launched in Jesus Christ. The new season of humanity has shown its face in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And Jesus, when he's calling men and women to follow him, always had the crucifixion and the resurrection in mind. He knew what was coming. And he knew that he was calling them not only to partner in church services, but to be part of the launching of God's new creation that was inaugurating his death, burial, resurrection. After 40 days of giving convincing evidence that he was in fact alive, bodily alive, not just a spirit, not just a ghost. In plain view, he... Ascends, he disappears through the clouds and he takes a seat at the right hand of God, the majesty of heaven, the seat of power. He goes back into his pre incarnate glory, but this time with a glorified human body. C.S. Lewis said he went down all the way down, but he goes up, and when he goes up, he takes all of creation with him. And so he invites you to participate in his death, in his burial, in his. Resurrection. It's what baptism is. And to profess your allegiance to him because Jesus, Ephesians 1 says that when he went up, he received a name that's far above. We have no, it's not just spatially, it's like we have no concept of what is meant by far above. I love what Corey Russell says. He's like, when I'm praying through Revelation 4 or 5, I don't really see anything. I just try to picture high. 
just we're high. He's, he's high. Far above. And it's not just the, re- the resolution of Israel's story is not just for Israel. Remember, the promise was that all nations would be blessed through them. So now he's beckoning all nations to come and share in intimate fellowship, relationship, covenant union with God. And to be restored to his eternal purpose and his original plan to have a family of sons and daughters that would co-rule at his son's side. And rule over the new creation. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This is the climax of the gospel. In which we will be restored to God's immediate presence. No need for sun or moon. For the light of God's face will be the light of the city. This is the story of Jesus. And it's actually not over yet. Some of the best parts have yet to happen. You know, because of how many bizarre evangelism conversations we have, sometimes I have to entertain weird conversations in my head long after I've left the whiteboard. (laughs) And thoughts just pop into my head. And I have to do dialogue and just thankful for when the Lord gives me help in those moments. And the other day, I mean, I'm ashamed to say that this thought popped in my head. What's different about prayer and you and like a six-year-old who has an imaginary friend? I was like, oh, I hate this thought, but it's there. What am I going to do with it? And then the answer came. It's like, I didn't imagine what God is like. He communicated his nature. He's revealed his glory in creation. Romans 1. He communicated in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, the scriptures, in former days he spoke to us many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's glory. Because Jesus has come, the word has become flesh. And no one has ever seen God except for Christ the son. He has made him known. So because... God's glory revealed in creation because of the scriptures, because Jesus Christ has come. I have relationship with ultimate reality, with the true being of God. Yeah. And can be confident in that because of my trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that's good news. Yeah. That's, that's really good news. So I said that the best part of the story is not over yet. You know, one day Jesus is going to split the sky the trumpet call and the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are still alive will meet him in the sky will be put on glorified resurrected bodies free from sin and sickness and from the reaches of death will put on immortality the bodies clothed in mortality will strip those and put on immortality will be changed to be just like him and will come down with him in almost like a, a royal procession And Jesus will set his feet on the Mount of Olives as he makes his way into Jerusalem and sets up his kingdom, literal, manifest on the earth. And there will come a day where, like I said, we won't stand before a human tribunal, but every person who has ever lived will stand before the one true God 
Not a pantheon of pick your God. But the one true God. And those who have chosen to believe in Jesus. And belief is not just intellectually coming to agreement with the historical facts. Because even the devil is in perfect agreement with what happened to Jesus. But to, from the heart, pledge loving, total allegiance to Jesus. And confessed him before men as Lord will enter into life. And those who have rejected the Son have rejected God's arm reaching into creation, and there awaits for them only condemnation and destruction. Part of the good news is that the one who will judge you was also judged for you. But he will not force, just like he wouldn't the day after the garden, he will not force the position of co-ruling with his son on anybody who does not love his son. And so therefore, we must exercise our free will moral agency to come into loving allegiance with Jesus and his kingdom. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. And the proclamation is Jesus is king and it's good news because he's a really good king. He's not like the the beast kingdoms of this earth. He rules with justice. Mercy. There's kindness in his eyes. Compassion, love. Mm. It's holy. We want his kingdom yeah. here yeah. on earth mm. as it is in heaven. Mm. So I want to ask you, have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? I'm not just talking, have you punched your ticket to heaven so that you don't go to hell? But have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Does he have the rightful place of lordship in your life? He doesn't just save us from our sins. He saves us into a relationship with him. We're called the bride of Christ, whether you're a male or female in the room. Corporately, collectively, we're called the bride of Christ. And he is a jealous lover. Which praise God for that. Ladies in the room, how many of you want a husband who could care less how many men you have on the side? A lot of alternative marriages out there today, but I don't know too many people who are fond of that idea. The fact that God is a jealous lover means he wants to fully possess your heart. And so the promise of the new covenant is though the stone tablets were shattered on the ground and it was a picture of the way that the covenant was broken. No sooner had he given it than they had broken it. And all of us are guilty of that. But the promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. I will cleanse you of all your impurities. So I want to sit in that for a moment. That's a type of cleansing that all this scrubbing in the earth could never achieve. I want you to picture you've got the dirtiest shirt in the world and you're about to appear before the most important person you've ever stood in front of. And God just puts 
brand new white shirt on you. I'll cleanse you of all your impurities. I'll rid you of all your idols. And I love, if you look at those passages, the terms of the new covenant, he says over and over and over again, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. That it's God's covenant faithfulness that performs the terms of the new covenant. I'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put a new spirit within you. I will write my law on your heart. And I'll move you from your inmost being to obey me. So the looming question of the Bible, how will God's faithfulness respond in the face of human failings? God's plan will prevail. God's purpose will be fulfilled. And God's promise will be kept to those who believe in the one through whom he has performed it, Jesus Christ. To those who will confess Christ as Lord. To those who will repent and turn. I just want to list off as we close this time some of the titles given to Jesus just as a way to exalt him as you decide in your own heart what response is proper to this man in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world, the only begotten son of the father, the alpha and the omega. The A to the Z, he's the beginning and the end, the way, the truth and the life. He's the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The heir to David's throne. He's the ruling one. The bright and morning star. He's the word of God made flesh. The only name given to man by which they may be saved. He is the Messiah. The bread that has come down from heaven. The bread of life. The water of life. He who drinks of me will never thirst. He's the source of eternal life. He's the treasure in the field. And he's the only one found worthy. What will you do with this man? This is the question that confronts all of humanity. Satan wants nothing more than to have your whole life eaten up by triviality. And to get you off of this question. What will you do with this man? Well, You should really be worried about what job you're going to have. Does he like you? Does he not? I don't know. What are you going to do with Jesus? It is the question of your life. It's not a secondary issue. Until that question is figured out, in fact, nothing else really matters. What does a man gain if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? 
Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that when a man discovered it, he sold everything to buy the field. Has the light of the gospel shone in your heart, unveiling the glory of God that rests in the face of Jesus? It's an old song that I sing around our house all the time and I can't sing. I just want you to sit in this for a second. Jesus, your name is like honey on my lips. Your spirit's like water to For just a moment, as we sit, we're singing out, Jesus, your name is like honey on my lips. Your spirit's like water to my soul. Remember, we were sitting in a prayer meeting before doing evangelism one time, and I was like, I don't know how to do this. We should just do a taste test. Like, just put taste test and just, I don't know, give people like a taste of Jesus. I don't know how to do that. Have you tasted the sweetness, the fatness, the marrow of the gospel? And let it sit like honey on your lips where you just are thinking about Jesus. And it's like that 
tingling on your lips that this is truly, I've tasted and seen Jesus is good news. Where, where his spirit's been like a water of refreshing in you. Have you known Jesus as the good news? The gospel call to response when Peter is preaching in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost after the Spirit is poured out. And the same one who just days before had denied Jesus is now proclaiming as one restored by his love. The wonders of the gospel says that men were cut to their heart. They say, what must we do? He said, repent, believe, and be baptized. That's the gospel call to response. We repent, which means we were once walking this way. We were darkened in our minds. We had no thought for God's rulership in our life. We repent. We turn. We change our mind. We walk in a new direction. We believe. Again, it's about loving allegiance. First, of course, you have to agree with the historical facts of who Jesus was and what he performed. But it's much more than that. It's a loving allegiance, a total loyalty to Christ. You believe in and receive all that he is for you. Yeah. As a savior, as a lord, as king, as messiah. As your elder brother, as your bridegroom king. Yeah. And then we're baptized. And too often in the church, baptism is for those who have decided to be radical in their faith where Responding to altar calls is like the first step, but in the new book of Acts, it's almost always like immediate. Yeah. That their willingness to publicly identify with Jesus and to be grafted into his family through this public act of saying, I'm joining Jesus in his death. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And buried with him in death, raised to walk in new life. That baptism... Is that act that signifies that? We are going forward with baptism next week, having no idea even how we're going to do it and not having any type of official sign up, just believing that there's people in the room who need to be baptized. So let's just create space to do that. And so I want to encourage you, if you need to be baptized to do it, don't put it off to like three years later when you decide that now you want to be serious. If you're in Christ, then it's an act of obedience. And it's the next logical step for a follower of Jesus to identify with him publicly. But first, I want to issue the invitation. If you're in this room tonight and you know that your heart has been cut by this message of Jesus and you know that you need to publicly receive him as Savior, profess him as Lord with no shame in your heart, I want you to stand to your feet right now. Just say, I'm confessing Christ as Lord. Yes, praise God. not to put pressure on anybody else, but is there anybody else in the room who feels that they need to respond to Jesus, that tonight needs to mark the night where the stake is going down in your own heart. Jesus is Lord. I trust him fully for my salvation. I can't do this on my own. If there's anybody else in the room, I want to invite you to stand right now. Yeah, praise God. Come on. draw this out but I just have to ask one last time is there anybody else tonight's the night
I've been in those situations before, like cinder blocks to my feet. And tonight's the night you put the stake in your heart. Nobody is saved through proximity or through secondhand connection. Your mother's faith, your father's faith, growing up in the church cannot save you. You must come into a personal connection with Jesus Christ, the Savior as Lord. If that's you tonight, you need to just profess that publicly. Seeing your feet's not what saves you. But if you need to make that profession before man, I encourage you to do so. And I just want to say to you, man, heaven applauds you. The Bible says that. When even, and I just want to encourage you, the courage it takes to stand up by yourself in a room, like Jesus is so proud of you. Jesus said that if any man confesses me before men, I will confess their name before the Father. There's a day coming where you're going to stand before Jesus and books, big fat books are going to be opened. And he's going to say your name in front of the Father. He's going to say your name in front of the Father. And on that day, it's not going to matter who else had your name in their lips. To have Jesus... It is worth it on this side of eternity to line up with Jesus. His kingdom is on the way and it's coming in power. Man, praise God. I want to, let's pray as a room. And again, a prayer doesn't save you. There's no magic formula. And the same faith that we begin in is the same faith we have to carry to the day that we die. It's not about sinless perfection because I don't know about you, but I haven't been perfect since I received Jesus into my life. But it is about remaining in those convictions. The belief that you have in Jesus and a desire and a willingness to follow him. Rely on his grace that's powerfully at work within you until the end. It's a remaining in Jesus all the way until the end. So I exhort you to that end to get surrounded with Christian brothers and sisters. But the same prayer I want to lead these two in. I want to lead the whole room in because it's a response that's proper for all of us continually. And I'm not going to say the words and ask you to repeat them. I want to lead you in what would be appropriate sections of prayer. And you give your own prayer to the Lord as it relates to that. So first, just let's just get in the posture of prayer. Just begin to confess your need for Jesus. And that's not something we graduate from. That's not something like lost people have a need for Jesus and people who are in the Lord don't need him anymore. We are all desperately way more than we're in touch with. In need of Jesus. I just want you to just take 30, 45 seconds to begin to just tell Jesus, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I can't be my own savior. I... From beginning to end, it's you, Jesus. You just begin to tell him that. It's not because of how radical we are. It's not because of. How extreme we appear to, you know, it's you from beginning to end, Jesus. It's not because of how hard we're trying. Jesus, it's because of you from beginning to end. Jesus, I need you. Just begin to confess your sin before him. For some of you, it may be broad. For some of you, there may be specific things that come to mind. And in confession, we don't try to dance around it. We just agree with what the Lord already knows. And we just confess it to him. First John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
because of the blood of Jesus, just confess your sins, bring them into the light, knowing that we have a faithful advocate with the Father and that Jesus' blood is, is sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And even as you're confessing, begin to turn your heart in repentance. Repentance is not just saying, I did, but Lord, and more than I'm sorry, but Lord, I'm changing my mind in this area. Lord, I'm turning in a new direction in this area. Give me grace to walk it out. Just begin to repent before the Lord. Just, and repentance is not just turning from sin, it's turning to the Lord. Just begin to turn yourself, turn your heart, turn your mind. Turn your affections towards Jesus. That's the beauty of repentance and why it can even be joyful. Because it's a turning towards God's face. And you can move through this at your own pace, but when you're ready, I want you to begin to just... Declare your belief in Jesus. Declare your trust in Jesus that his death was sufficient. That his resurrection is real and his power avails much. Just begin to declare your trust in Jesus. Your confidence in Jesus. Believe that your blood is enough. I plead your blood over my sins. I plead your blood over my heart and over my mind. I trust Jesus that you are who you say you are. That you are enough. That you are sufficient. That you are who you say you are. Believe in your death, your burial, your resurrection. I believe that you're the Son of God. The Messiah and my King. Believe that you died in my place. Bearing my sin and my shame and my guilt. So that I could be restored. I believe that it's your grace that saves me. Not, not works, but it's your grace. It's your unmerited favor. And I just want you to begin to confess Him as Lord of your life. Just begin to tell Him, Jesus, I hand over the reins of my life. I, I can't be in a place of control and surrender at the same time. Just begin to bring your heart into the place of surrender to just... Taking your hands off. There may even be specific situations that come to mind where uh, trusting and confessing the Lordship of Jesus looks like taking your hands off. And saying, Jesus, I confess you as Lord. Set up your kingdom in my heart. Rule and reign in my life. Establish your rule in my life. I come under your Lordship. If we could get the worship team to come up here and just feel it's appropriate that we just end in a time of just celebration and just worshiping the Lord.